The following is a production of PMA Magazine. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the fifth episode and season zero finale of the PMA Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Matt Johnston. I'm the editor-in-chief of PMA Magazine. And in case you're new here, PMA stands for Positive Mental Attitude. And we focus on positive news about tremendous people doing great things for their communities or for the world. PMA started as a print magazine in 2019. And you can learn more about us at our website, www.getthatpma.com. Now, as I mentioned in a previous episode... This first season is called Season Zero because it was really a pilot to see if we could even pull off a podcast. It was also an opportunity for us to learn about the process and see if anyone would even listen if we made it. We've had a blast putting these episodes together and really appreciate all the great comments and feedback we've received so far. So thanks. This episode is special for a few important reasons. The first one is that unlike all the previous episodes, we actually recorded this one properly in a studio. So this is a little glimpse into what the next season will sound like. It's also remarkable because had our guest this week not done so much important work building skate parks across his home state of Montana, this magazine and podcast may never have been created. For more detail on that, you can go back to the first episode of the podcast. Okay. Imagine with me, if you will, what it must have been like for a kid living on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in northwest Montana the day Evergreen skate parks rolled into town. The empty dirt field that once served as a shortcut to the mini-mart gets sculpted into a concrete alien landscape in just a few short months. Now imagine what it would have felt like to be handed a brand new skateboard on opening day by this dude named Jeff, whose only concern was really that you just have as much fun as possible. Can you picture this? Can you see yourself as that kid? One moment you have no idea why anyone would want to even ride a skateboard. And the next, you're being anointed as steward of your own fantasy factory, sailing across a moonscape like Wonderland on your gifted skateboard. Literally, overnight, you and your friends and siblings have been given a new way to explore your own freedom through self-expression, personal challenge, athleticism, and a whole lot of fun. It would be like the circus had come to town, but one where the ringmaster pointed at the tent and said, this is all yours now. You'd start stealing away as much time as possible at the skate park. You would make memories and forge bonds that would last forever. And it would be hard to remember what life was like before the skate park. Maybe you wouldn't even want to think about it. You might not ever want these moments to end. Now, for thousands of kids across Montana, this fantastical narrative is a real story, largely due to Jeff Ament's Montana Pool Service Organization, a one-man nonprofit that has helped to build 23 skate parks across Montana and is working on more as you read this, about three each year. Now, much has been written about Jeff Ament and his success as the bass player for Pearl Jam, a band as well-known for its philanthropy and activism as it is for its music. But it's what Jeff has chosen to do with his time outside of his impressive rocking career that really moves this lifelong skateboarder. As a kid growing up in a rural Montana town, Jeff made discoveries at an early age that proved to be the seeds for a lifetime of giving back. Driven by his parents, his church, and his community, Jeff learned that the best way to stay rooted is to look for opportunities to help those around you. 
Today, he's making a big difference for incredibly stoked kids in towns like Big Sandy, Hayes, Box Elder, and Browning. The internet has changed the equation a bit, but these towns are still isolated, and the kids there want to expand their horizons. Like all young people, they want to push on the boundaries constructed for them by society and test the limits of what's possible. They want to be free. What Montana Pool Service delivers to the kids in these communities is just that, a place to be free. Jeff was kind enough to drop by for a chat to help us trace the roots of his empathy and learn more about his groundbreaking organization, the Montana Pool Service. So with that, I'd like to bring you this awesome interview with Jeff Ament right here on the PMA podcast. I hope you love it. So let's talk about your family and friends growing up in the 70s in, um, was it Haver or Big Big Sandy? Big Sandy. Um, And like, what did your family do for a living when you were growing up? Well, it, it was, uh, I mean, my, when my parents got married, my dad had just finished barber school and, uh, he's, he was coming out of the army. He, he grew up in West central Minnesota on a dairy farm in a really small German community and, uh, one of 13. And, uh, he was kind of the one kid of the family that sort of just wanted to get out. And so he, you know, he was in the army and he went to Fort Ord in California and then got stationed in Hawaii. <laughs> so a, a guy that had never been probably further out of his area than 60 mile. I think he, I think he went to the twin cities once or twice when he was a kid. Um, so he found himself in California for a few months and then was in Hawaii, which had to be <clears throat> like reality reversal had to be his ayahuasca trip. <laughs> um, and when he was in the army, he he was cutting hair to make extra money and uh, decided he wanted to be a barber and went to barber school, which the closest barber school was Spokane. And the halfway point was Haver, Montana, which is where he met my mom. And uh, ended up getting a job uh, out of barber school uh, in Haver, working for a barber there. And uh, my parents got married and, you know, they ended up, he ended up, buying a, a barber business in Big Sandy, which was 35 miles away. And shortly after had me and <clears throat> four more kids. And uh, um, just trying to give you, I mean, you've been to Big Sandy, so you sort of, you sort of, you have a visual for it. But uh, growing up, it was uh, pretty conservative and pretty much everybody I knew went to one of the three churches. And pretty much everybody I knew went to one of the six bars. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, the thing that I realized a, f- a few years ago was, um, <clears throat> you know, you start to think about uh, how, you know, as you get older, you start to think about all the similarities you have with your parents. Like, and, you know, and you, at least I came to the conclusion that I'm, pretty much 90% my parents. <laughs> I've changed. I think through my 20s and 30s, I thought, oh man, I got out. I'm doing my own thing. I'm, you know, punk rocker. Like, you know, like, so on the surface, I see, couldn't seem more different. But, um, you know, over the last 10 years, like I start to realize that I'm so much my dad. And, and one of the things that I've looked back on is like how growing up my dad was he was a volunteer mayor for 20 years he was on the church council he helped build the church 
He was a barber, an insurance salesman, a school bus driver, a farmer. Um, he helped tons of people around town, like elderly people. He helped them fix their plumbing or remodel their kitchen or <laughs> he just always had these little jobs all over town and I think in a lot of cases it was just his uh, sense of community like oh somebody needs help I'm gonna go help and that's just that was just part of who he was and uh, I didn't think much about it when I was a kid and I think a part of me even probably was embarrassed <laughs> of that when I was a kid because he was he was scrapping so hard to sort of put food on the table and uh you know, you have, you know, friends that, you know, live on bigger farms or the banker's kid who I was really good friends with, you know, they sort of have nicer cars and, you know, different things. But we, it never felt like we were like the poor family, even though we probably were, um, because we camped all the time. We, every summer we took a trip to California, Oregon or Minnesota. So... Again, that other part of me who likes to travel and explore, that's my dad. That's totally my dad. Like all, all these things that, you know, when I think about um, the good things that I, you know, my, my good personality traits and some of my bad ones, but it really comes from just what I witnessed growing up, what, you know, witnessing my dad, like be such a community guy and be so helpful to everybody <clears throat> and to do it for no credit, no money, very little money. Um, I think that's, you know, it's a little bit of a different process for me because I'm not home as much. You know, it's not, uh, I'm not, I, you know, I would love to be a volunteer basketball coach or any of those things, but I'm never, there's no consistency in my schedule. So, I've sort of had to find other ways to sort of contribute um, to my communities. <clears throat> and the, the thing that's worked the best for me uh, has, you know, sort of happened over the last 10, 15 years, and that's building these skate parks in Montana. And, and it's really put me back in touch with uh, these small communities, and it's put me back in touch with the town that I grew up in. And I don't, we don't have kids, so it puts me in touch with young people in a really interesting way, and at young people in small communities and uh, reservations. Um, so that part's just been an absolute joy <clears throat> for me, like the, you know, all the, uh, the fringe benefits of building these skate parks is, is the relationships that you, you know, create in the process and you meet the families and the people in the town that are the volunteers that are doing, you know, all the real work and, you know, the ones that are there every day trying to help their, you know, the youth and trying to raise their families and trying to, you know, keep their, <clears throat> the small rural town alive um, some way. And they, they sort of realize that skate park is actually a kind of a cool way to bring the town into the 21st century. And, um, it's 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 just it's been amazing to to the 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 really cool people that I've met in that process. So um, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm almost like a full time Montana guy again, which is that that's been really fun. This is a lot, right? Because you meet a lot of people just in your you know your day job playing in your band. You you've met a lot of people, and it's so it's interesting to hear you say like. You know, through the skate park stuff, like there's all these really enriching, like 
cool connections that you're making with people on a totally different level. Um, so uh, do you remember, and, and I think it's also the, the being a barber in a small town, it sounds like the small town experience where you're just connected anyway. It's yeah. not like you live in a big city where everybody's just sort of passing by each other on their way to somewhere else. It's like, you kind of have to help each other out because you're all in it together. Yeah. And then the barber in a small town is like, I mean, everybody knows, maybe maybe kids today don't know, but barbers were like, that barber shop was where you got your news. And the barber was kind of like the mayor, unofficial mayor. It sounded like he was even the official mayor. Yeah. Um, so- I mean, uh, I mean, he was a therapist. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like- I, it's 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 been amazing the last 10 years we've been working on a cabin my dad sells a little piece of property outside of big sandy and every summer i go out for five to ten days and help him work on it and just to hear the stories that you know the stuff that he knows <laughs> about growing up that i had no idea the stuff that was going on but it was because he was the barber he was like you know it was a place where if you know a guy was lucky enough to come in and be the only customer they could have sort of a real conversation, you know, and it could be, you know, somebody's wife's having her, you know, fooling around behind his back or, you know. Yeah. So my dad had a lot of information. He was holding a lot of information that, you know, that he wasn't necessarily giving up. So. Right, right, right. So do you remember um, like the first time you did something like that you participated in that as a kid? Like, did your dad drag you out to go help somebody or do you remember a, a really early fundamental experience where you're like, oh, okay, helping other people? Um, <clears throat> probably the main thing. I mean, I, I mean, my dad on the weekends, he, we, I was out helping him, like I, whether it was on the farm or was out chopping up wood for the winter or uh, working on the house or pouring concrete or <laughs> working on the garden. You know, there was always something sort of going on, but something he he. He, probably when I was about 12 or 13, there was like five or six elderly people in town that, I mean, there, there wasn't a, there wasn't a garbage, uh, service there. There was a, a dump on the edge of town that people had to haul their garbage out. And, you know, once or twice, a, once or twice a month, they'd light it on fire, which is very 60s, 70s style. Um, and then just cover it up and dig another hole. Um, but there was, there was four or five ladies that he was he was helping out and then it started to grow and started to grow and then when i was 14 when i got my driver's license um uh he just said hey that i can't do this anymore i got i got other things going on this is your this is your gig and i was like i didn't really want the gig <laughs> um <laughs> but so i think i think by that time there was like 12 or 15 people that um you know, whether it was once a week or whatever. And then the schools asked. And so I was like doing this, gnar like they had these gnarly incinerators at both the, the grade school and the high school. And they would just throw everything in these incinerators and burn it. And then I had to dig all that <clears throat> ashes and all the crap and load it into the back of the pickup and take it out to the dump. Um, but by the time I finished, when I was a senior, I had like 35, 40 customers and the awesome thing was, was that, I mean, it sucked because I played sports. So Sundays were the day that I had to go do garbage. And every two weeks I had to do the school. So normal week, it might take two hours or three hours to do it. If it was a school, if it was the every two weeks time, it was like six, seven hours. Like in, in December, after you played a basketball game a hundred miles away and woke up and went to church and then you breakfast and then dad's like, hey, you got to get out and 
he'd be like, oh God, you know, I just want to, I just want to watch football or, you know, whatever was going on. But the best part of it was, uh, I always had, I always had pocket change, you know, I could buy records and I could kind of keep my car running and I had gas money and I could buy skateboards. And, and so I was like, I was sort of living a middle-class existence in my teen years because I had a job because I had a job and there's something you know there's something in the lesson of that like that that stuck with me like I, it was pretty easy transition for me when I after I moved to Seattle and, and got a job and and it was it wasn't a big deal for me to work 40 50 hours a week and to spend 10 to 20 hours a week in rehearsals and to go home and make posters and design shirts and it you know it seemed like a great life it seemed like yeah i'll work 40 hours a week so i can have fun doing this other work and and uh and you look back on it and you think like wow i was like i was really working like 70 hours 80 hours a week like for seven or eight years and uh you know it was easy it was easy because i because of where i came from and what you know well, my, well, my dad sort of taught me, even though I, you know, I mean, I hated my dad, like when I was 16, 17, 18, like I, you know, all my friends were hanging out at the pool and going to the, watching the football game and bowling and doing all, you know, all this other stuff. And I had these, I had these little jobs that I had to, that took precedent over that stuff, but. There were meaningful lessons there. Um, so, okay. So let's skip forward a little bit. So, um, you mentioned this in another interview and, um, and uh, I thought that was really interesting and maybe connected to this skate park stuff. So um, you're playing basketball. It's like intramural basketball or high school basketball or whatever. And, um, you know, I've been out there and it's like, there's like, there's like Big Sandy and then there's the Rocky Boy Reservation and then there's Haver and then there's, an, you know, Browning's right down the street. And, and so it's like, it's almost like, you know, one town away is this um, equivalent town but as a kid, as an athlete, you're traveling and you're going and you're playing basketball at these other schools and these other towns. And you're observing the differences between what you experience in your town and what you're what they're experiencing in their town. Can you talk about a little bit like what your observations were and sort of like what your takeaways were that maybe um, you carried with you into your adult life? Yeah, I mean, we we grew up uh, ten miles from the Rocky Board Reservation, and so two of the schools that we played against from fifth grade on were Rocky Boy and Box Elder, and and then you know I I think um, the thing that I realized early on was that was how I don't I don't even know if anybody ever actually really explained like ethnicity and <laughs> the differences between us. I don't, I, I don't think I had an adult, a teacher, a history teacher, or anybody really explain that stuff. Um, so, I, I mean, from a very young age, I mean, I remember going to see the Harlem Globetrotters when I was six or seven years old. And my dad always tells a story that I told Geese Osby that someday I was going to be a Harlem Globetrotter. And so in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm someday if I just I can will myself to be a six foot ten African American man. <laughs> I just I, you know, I why not? Nobody ever told me that I couldn't. So I just thought that that was a possibility in my mind because that was the guy that was obviously having the most fun of anybody I'd ever been around. Um, 
but I did know I did notice like when we went and played <clears throat> in Rocky Boy when we were in the community that was the deepest in the reservation. Um, I noticed a profound difference in those places. Um, uh, you could tell life was just a little bit harder. Um, uh, and when I would hear adults in my own town talk about it, there it was there was always a lot of prejudice and uh, a lot of anti welfare speak. Um, and uh, again, nobody ever taught me the history, you know, like the the way that they talked about Native American history. I remember our history books in junior high were like from the 50s. And so there was, you know, who, know, who knows what the angle was on, you know, Native American history that time. nobody was, uh, you know, people's history of the United States was not a part of our curriculum. So, um, uh and then I think probably seventh or eighth grade, I went to a pow I went to a powwow for the first time, and that was when it sort of hit me the hardest. Where I was like, "Wow, like this is like this is you know this is ten miles away, and this is really different." And sort of starting to understand the his the real history of what was going on with these people, and starting to get a little bit of a grasp on what the reservation was, and and you know as I got older you start to seek out that information a little bit more and then you, you you find out a little bit more about what really happened and even you know well into my 20s still was educating myself on really really what was going on um with that and in some ways i look back and go like wow it was really cool to live to be so close but i wish somebody had maybe informed me um and I still think to this day, I think there's there's a real there's a real hard line between uh, Native Americans in that area and the white people in that area, and um, and I think this uh, current administration, just the way that they've revved everybody up with the anti-immigration stuff, I think the Native Americans sort of become uh, the. They sort of become the Hispanic population that that you know California or Texas or Arizona and those places are you know when they the anti-immigration stuff. I think the natives end up becoming part of that conversation, and which is crazy. <laughs> um, so it's sort of re revisionist, some sort of weird revisionist history. Like you know, some of these people might even actually think that they're that that's their land and not you know right because nobody has ever really taught them otherwise or. Or there's some weird thing like, oh, they just need to get over it. Or, and it's like, when you start to understand like the, the trauma that they went through at that time, um, that doesn't, that, you know, people don't get over that, especially if, especially if there's no way for them to sort of work their way out of it. I mean, I read a thing a few years ago where it talked about, you know, the trauma of the slaves coming over in slave ships and stuff. They said that can take like four or five generations of like, of healthy mm -hmm. uh, environment to sort of come through. Yeah. It's like, so if there's not a healthy environment for that to come through, it's just the continual trauma. It's like they're, you know, they're, they feel like, you know, they're second class and they feel, uh, um, I think because it is <clears throat> a little bit of a welfare state, I think there's I think there's all sorts of psychological things tied into that too that they're sure. you know that they're not earning their keep or they're being reminded of that stuff and um, 
you know, that's, that's the, that's the stuff that you, you know, every time that I, you know, spend time in any of the reservations around the state, I, I, all that stuff just hits me so hard because you, you start to <clears throat> peel away just a little bit of that, that outside layer of, of, uh, the, the heaviness of, of their history, um, to, to just try to have it be a even playing field, you know, for five minutes, yeah. <laughs> just to, just to, um, so, um, well, in a way that's what you create when you build skate park, right? It's like when you strip away all these other things and all these trappings and the historical stuff, baggage, it's like, um, you know, it's just, and I was struck with this image of sort of you standing on the basketball court and just kind of like looking in the mirror at this kid who's like your age and you both play the same position and you're like yeah. guarding each other and you're just kind of like sensing these differences. Um, and I think like, you know, the same thing is true in a skate park when you come up there. And when I was at, you know, when I was at Thunder Park or when I was at a Box Elder or whatever, it was just like me and the other skateboarders and we were all kind of, and I was the outsider. I was the invader, yeah. you know? So did when you guys um, back in the like late seventies and early eighties when you were like skateboarding you had to build ramps were there any um, uh, kids from the reservation that you were skating with at that time No uh, I mean there there was uh, I think in Big Sandy because I had the ramp there was uh, maybe four or five other kids including my brother that skated the ramp I mean it was like skateboarding was like a like we were from Mars you know. Um, and I think at that time it was so, um, you know, the only time that I met kids that skated in other cities was, I mean, I was lucky enough that my my parents would drive me to a contest, you know? And so I went to Great Falls and I went to Helena to these contests starting in 1977. And uh, that was how I met everybody. Like, it was amazing. Like, first time I went to Great Falls and there was like 50 kids and they all got gear and like, you know, and a lot of times, like, a lot better gear, you know, like, they had slalom boards, and I was, I'm running slalom with my homemade oak deck, and, uh, but to, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember a single Native kid. Wow. Like, at that time. Wow. Okay. Well, that's going to change, or that's changing already. So, and thanks to you. Um, so... It's the late 70s, you're making all these observations, and at the same time, you're experiencing this calendar culture stuff like punk rock and skateboarding. Um, and you had your own little local scene, uh, but a lot of it was happening in Great Falls or Helena or these other places that you had to go to. Do you remember when um, you started gravitating, gravitating towards stuff that had a message versus like the Ted Nugents and the Bostons into the punk that you ended up playing in Deranged Diction? Like... I see music and art can be a vehicle for trying to change stuff and, um, and Hey, I can change things. So I'm going to change things by writing a song or, um, instead of going the escapism route, like kiss or yeah. Rick Derringer or whatever. I mean, I think I, it, it, you know, I was, I feel like I was lucky that, you know, us punk or hardcore started to happen pretty much the exact same time that I went to college. <laughs> so you know, I was I was listening. I remember ordering like the first Black Flag single and the first Men Men single and Dead Kennedys and a few things when I was in high school. But when I went to college, um, I remember I was in my dorm room the first day and I was like kind of playing my music kind of soft. And then a kid walked by and he goes, "Oh, I just saw Black Flag at the Starwood," and I was like, "What?" And uh, 
that that sort of rolled over into i mean that guy john donahue i ended up being in a band with and he grew up in west covina and was like friends with the adolescents and you know that whole scene and um you know one thing led to another it was like we started playing music together we started a band um i'd never been in a band before i was a piano player so playing a bass or a guitar wasn't like my first uh natural thing to do um but the more people that i met i started meeting a few older kids and this kid tom kipp who um uh sang and maybe like he might have been the second or third singer that we had um these older kids were like some of them were gay i didn't know anything about gay culture at all i didn't know that it existed till i went to college uh, when people were explaining it to me i was like wow like i can't believe you know and then i you immediately start thinking like wow is that kid that i grew up with and was this kid and um but all that stuff just turns into these amazing conversations with they're the type of conversations that i'd never had in my life um because I was in a community of conservative people who were sort of afraid of anything that was outside of like going to business school and getting a good job and having three kids. Um, I started having conversations with like uh, really smart left-wing people and conspiracy theorists and like atheists. And, and so college, college and punk rock like started to form like my... I started to find out who I was through all those conversations. You start to, you start to feel an affinity towards, you know, something and you go like, Oh yeah, Nixon was an asshole. Like, you know, even though everybody told me <laughs> growing up that he was a good guy and he got railroaded and whatever. Right. Um, and then you really start, you really start um, sidling up with like the dead, you know, something like Jello Biafra and, and crass and people who are talking about things that you know that are happening in countries that like again we're not part of our history books and uh and so it becomes it becomes part of your continuing education because you're you know maxim rock and roll is telling you about noam chomsky and like you know people that are you know um telling the story from the other side and um it's that's you know that's sort of how i found out who i was and who my people were and you know within a couple of years it was it became apparent that i had to be around more people like that and that's what got me out to seattle you know I, we took a trip out here to see you know the clash and x and a few shows and i was like oh, this is where i gotta be right like, well and, and like so okay so you're you've discovered punk rock and a lot of these bands are talking about issues and they're it's not just like escapist lyrics and I mean some of it was, but a lot of a lot of especially in punk rock was a commentary kind of music. And um and then, you know, you through your career, you are in Pearl Jam probably the most successful or or at least one of the most successful bands that have like made giving back a huge part of what you do. I mean, it's like it's like you don't do anything without thinking about how you can leverage your success to benefit somebody else. And it's exceptional. And like the, the recent um, home shows and I mean, just your whole career, you guys have always been kind of thinking about that. And um, do you think that that 
giving process and having that be a component, which is like, you know, the, the foundation is uh, also where I, the MPS, like a lot of the MPS money is coming from too, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, the, it's connected to it. I mean, it comes from your personal <clears throat> money too, but. Yeah, I have, I have two things going. So I have the, my chunk out of Vitalogy and I've had actually a Montana Pool Service Foundation for the last five or six years that I didn't feel like we were generating enough money <laughs> in that. And so um, I just, I just, just, I mean, I didn't think we'd be a band this long. I didn't think we'd be right. still touring and doing all this stuff. So I just, I put like, depending on how many shows that we do, I put somewhere between a third and a half the money that I make back into the Montana pool service thing. And, and also just trying to think ahead, like think, uh, if, you know, if I, if you can, if I can grow, you know, if you can grow that money and then just keep it going, like after I'm gone or, you know, all, all, all of, all of those things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be skate parks. It can be. And again, you're, you're, even when you're giving back, you're again, thinking about beyond you and outside of you, which is amazing. So like how, so you've got all this stuff going on. How does that affect your creative process? Like what would your creative output be without that giving back? Do you think that they're connected? Do you think that it keeps you rooted in some way or connected in some way? I know you've mentioned that it like makes touring a little bit more rewarding, but like in terms of the creative process and in terms of yourself as a creative person, how much does this giving back stuff really kind of reciprocate itself and feed back into your output? Well, I I mean, I think it's who we've always been as a band. I think, uh, I think, uh, sort of how we have carried ourselves and how we run our business and where Ed has come from lyrically. And I think all of that sort of ties back into uh, us paying attention to what's, you know, going on around us. And, and in the process, we've been able to travel a lot and, you know, uh, you know, all the side trips, you know, that, and all, you know, you think about the first time we went to Arizona, we went to Mount Graham where there were the Catholic church was trying to build a, a observatory on native land. I mean, that was in 1992 or something, you know, maybe the second time we went to Arizona, but there's all these side trips that we've, you know, we've done um, while we've been touring. And again, you meet all these people, you meet all these people who are like, passionate about what's going on in their community and they're volunteering 20 40 hours a week and you know you you know when you're around that sort of passion and that and that uh that kind of energy you just can't help but like get sucked into it and and to be and be inspired by it and so i think um i mean i mean i love van halen and i love acdc and i love you know, like I associate some of that music with some of the funnest times I had as a kid. And like, they're, you know, you're out and you're just having fun and you want to forget about whatever. But there was something that happened to me when I got into punk rock. And then all of a sudden, like Jello's telling a story about <laughs> uh, police brutality or a- any of the things that, you know, any of the things that were going on. A lot, a lot of it was like sort of the homogeny of like, suburbia and like just you know the man trying to form you into this thing that was controllable and i've i related to that i related to like feeling that pressure growing up of like your teachers and everybody telling you that you're supposed to be this thing you're not feeling you're not feeling it at all and 
so punk rock was punk rock gave like music meaning for me like it like all of a sudden like it wasn't just like you know i'm gonna drink six beers and get in my lips you know like it was like this you know anxious you know driving music that had like real passion behind it you know and a real story and a story that made you want to learn more about any you know any of these topics and i think that's the sort of band that pearls in i think i think our roots are sort of in that you know in that rebel music you know i think it's uh and it, i think it's all it all just feeds you know those are the conversations that we have when we hang out when we hang out we're talking about like i can't believe this is fucking going on or you know and it's easy this last couple of years because it's like every day every day it's like oh my god like we've somehow this president's packed a hundred years of like news yeah. <laughs> into two years um so um I mean, that's, you know, yeah. th that, that's the great thing because it's every day is every day is sort of a school day and every day is a day that you're, you know, you're trying to learn more and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to understand the 39% that still support them and all, right. all of it, right. you know, so. Um, well, it sounds like the, the giving back inspires you to create the music that inspires people to go out and get inspired, like. And so, you know, this, the sense of inspiration and the exploration and the wanting to like kind of learn more and meet more and, and understand more is just the common thread that goes through all of that. And I think that that, um, that leads really well into what you're doing with your foundation and stuff. So um, we know that you got, let's get into the skate park stuff. So we know that you've got a taste of skate park advocacy through your involvement with Seascape. Um, and then that led into the St. Ignatius skate park. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, St. Ignatius and Mobat, like the Missoula Park. Um, you know, I can't remember St. I think the Missoula Park might have been finished before, but that was all. Um, Montana Skate Park Association, which is uh, was initially Chris Bacon and Ross Peterson. Chris Bacon owns the skateboard shop in Missoula, Board of Missoula. Ross Peterson is a pro snowboarder. Um, uh, and those guys basically created this little community with Andy Chemist and Kim Peterson and a it's a really great little group. Um, and they've had their, they still have their hands in parks. I mean, they get, they've uh, found grant money that they've been able to go out and get. And, you know, for the last few years, like they give, you know, a hundred, 150 grand away. And they, they're sort of like the, <laughs> I mean, my thing's called Montana pool service. And so, their unofficial title is like Montana Street, <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so there's you know they they, they sort of uh, advocate for street uh, uh, elements to the park. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick break in the action here to let you know that this interview was the basis for an article in issue number three of our beautiful print magazine, which is available at our website www.getthatpma.com. Jeff's on the cover, and the article contains some incredible photography from world-class photographers like Bryce Knights and Andy Chemis, and it's the perfect companion piece to this podcast. At GetThatPMA.com, you can also pick up back issues, subscribe to our magazine, or grab a PMA t-shirt. We're still just getting started, and any purchases really do make a huge difference and give us the ability to keep bringing you stories like these. So thanks so much. Now let's get back to the interview. 
you know, you went from basically like, yeah, I'll um, I'll help this skate park in Seattle right. re- reface the ramps or whatever, to basically building a statewide network of skate parks in Montana. And um, I'm guessing that along the way, you're like, you have to learn some stuff. Like, um, what kinds of new things did you have to learn in order to get from point A to point B? And then, like, who were kind of some of the most important partners? You just mentioned a whole bunch of them. Um, were there any other really important people that helped you get from, like, just sort of being, like, this um, uh, uh, donor to somebody who's actually making these happen? Well, I, you know, I think, I mean, going back to the very beginning and, like, you know, taking my first trips down to Oregon with Steve Turner and Chris Maneras and seeing what Dreamland Grindland was kind of doing and going to Burnside and Donald and Lincoln City the first time. I was, I was mind-blowing. Almsville, those places. Um, and I didn't, get to, I didn't get to skate a bunch of parks growing up. I lucky, Luckily, I got to go to Winchester and Campbell and I skated a park in Bismarck, North Dakota and like not much in between. Um, so to go to those first parks... And then I started going to West Seattle and skating the Butterball when, when they built that. <clears throat> and and then started having these conversations with the guys that were there with, you know, Hubbard and uh, uh, Rabbi and um, Jay, who was living there, um, sort of joking around like, hey, when are you going to build me a bowl, you know? And partly it was Steve and Chris were saying like, hey, you should build a bowl. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I should build a bowl. <laughs> I, yeah, I have a piece of property. I should build a bowl. Um, and then right in the middle of when they were building Orcas, they called me and they were like, hey, man, we're ready to come out. I'm like, what do you mean? And they go, yeah, we can be out there in like two days. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, you know, I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> and um, that was sort of the beginning of like watching those guys build my bowl and and then – Shortly thereafter, uh, you know, really uh, pushing to have Grindline build the park in Missoula and then going to all the parks that they were building all over the place. And to, and, to, um, and even before I built my bowl, like I, I went to a bunch of parks and was like measuring things out and like, oh, I like that corner and I like this. And, and so that's sort of been the process from the beginning. And, and I, you know, it's like I have a... I have some construction skills like my, my dad, like we were building stuff and we were pouring concrete and we were, you know, so I sort of have a little bit of understanding of what was going into building these parks. And I knew how special that their, uh, their talents were. Like I knew, I just knew like, wow, like, like I know how hard it is to make a sidewalk smooth and they're making like a, a curved, you know, uh, shape perfect. And, um, and so I think I think those those early days of being around those guys and just how much passion they had for what they were doing and they wanted to make it the best and the biggest and the first and the and um you know they get they get they get quite a bit of credit but um I still don't think they get enough credit for what how for how much they've changed the world of skateboarding um because it it did, really did start with a pretty small group of guys, and um, that didn't know really what the fuck they were doing when they started out, and they and really they're like they're like part wizard, part scientist, part like innovator. I mean, the newest iPhone is 
I guess, pretty interesting. But the things that those guys are doing with like the blend of the concrete, the the recipes that they're mixing up and the recipes that are based on like, okay, well, we need to shoot something over it. It needs to stick. And then we need, you know, like yeah. all that stuff is really incredible. Yeah. And then, and then like the stuff that, um, so you work a lot with evergreen skate parks and the stuff that I realized when I was just standing in Browning or standing in any one of those parks was the um, almost like, uh, it's like math. There's like some kind of crazy mathematical algorithm in Billy's brain where like every wall and every distance is perfect and every height is perfect and every angle is completely yeah. complementary to the other thing. And so that you can basically just ride anywhere in the whole park and it all works yeah. together. Yeah. Um, you're right. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and to hear any of those guys talk about that stuff, like, you know, I, I mean, I spent hours talking with listening to or, or just listening to Hubbard talk about, <laughs> you know, what numbers meant to him and the f- Freemasonry aspect of it. Um, and I, you know, I can follow mo- most of it. And Billy's the same way, like the way that he's building parks. You know, I, 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 I spent a couple years in the Tony Hawk Foundation and went to a, f- a, f- a few meetings. <clears throat> and I think. I think I don't think they. I think they immediately look at those parks and they just think, oh, that's just like some weird Carlsbad ripoff, like you know, seventies, blah blah blah. I go, no, no, no. You can ride that park on two two totally different levels. A beginner person can get in that thing, and you literally, like you said, you can turn wherever you want on any part of it, and you can you can pull it. And then if you watch those guys ride it, it's like it's all transfer lines. It's and like big gaps and like. It's a completely, you write it in a complete, and, it's, and I, I was trying to explain to them, I was like, it's sort of the way that they make uh, children's movies now. They make it so the kids can laugh, and they make it so the parents can laugh. And I said, this park is sort of the same, the way they're, they're building these parks, it's sort of the same way. There's, there's, a, there's a multi-layer thing going on, and, uh, and Billy has his own, you know, he, you know, he spent some time interning with, you know, Dreamland and Grindline and those those guys. But he had this thing in the back of his mind and how he wanted to do things. And the way that he does blends and stuff is completely different than anybody else. And it's, and he explains it. I don't quite completely understand it, but he has a, the way radiuses meet and all this stuff. It's like you go super big to, and meet super small. There's all this stuff that happens. And he, when he gets the most excited is when they're working on a park and he sends me, he goes, check this pour out. And, and it'll be like, <laughs> you know, so many blends, three hips meeting, you know. And when you go to those parks and you see the pours, you, you know, you see the magic of like, oh, yeah, there's a giant donut and a volcano and a thing that meets three hips. And when you ride the thing, it all... Yeah, it all works. There's yeah. there's not any point where that pitches you off weird or sends you to a weird spot. It's like, it's it's you know again it's it's alien. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, I think what you the analogy that you made about the movies is really good because, um, except for when like when you're skating one of those parks. The, there's a progression, a path of progression between the kid jokes and the adult jokes. Like a movie doesn't really ramp you up on what the adult jokes mean. If you're a kid and you watch the same movie over and over again, you don't eventually learn what those, maybe you do, but it, it does, it's not designed for that. But like these skate parks, they're, um, if you just keep riding them, you'll get to the adult jokes. Yeah. Like eventually yeah. you'll start making those transfers yeah. and it kind of leads you through it. 
and it's it's really it's really cool that works and so um okay so let's talk about uh, kind of the best i think in my opinion at least of the ones that i've skated the best example of what we're talking about which is thunder park and browning um and you know uh Tyson Running Wolf, who's the secretary of the Blackfeet tribe, was quoted as saying that the skate park was one of the greatest donated gifts the Blackfeet have ever received, which is just that had to blow you away. Yeah. Um, wow. Right. And so as a skate park advocate myself for 15 years in Seattle, that's incredibly powerful to me because here we have to we have people fighting to stop them from being built. Right. Right. They don't see them as gifts. They see them as like blight on their yeah. on their uh, in their neighborhood. And so are there any examples of where towns um, didn't want a skate park you were offering to help, help them build? Um, I think about half, I think, you know, half of the towns that we've, we built parks in initially, there's some apprehension. And, and I think even, you know, especially the first two or three reservations that we approached, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of it like, Hey, what's in this, in this for you? And what's, you know, you know, it's a, it's a brand new thing that they haven't dealt with. And so, I think when I don't know. I think I think whenever you're gifting something, people think that you want something in return. And um, I, I just I just say what you know. I mean, a lot of times I was saying it for the first time, but I'm like, yeah, why am I doing this? You know, like, and and a lot of it is just telling them that hey, I grew up in a small town and I grew up next to a reservation, and I've been lucky enough to be in this band for almost 30 years and we're more wildly successful than we've ever been right now, which is insane. And it's, it's insane. And so I, I just say, I, I, you know, I want to give back. And for me, I want to give back to where I came from. And, and I, and I feel like my dollar goes further in those places and, um, working with evergreen and the, you know some of these parks we build are fifty thousand dollars i mean you can't even get like geotech work in a city park for that much money and so um i just feel i feel like we're getting so much and in a lot of these parks i'm not partnering with anybody and there's so much <laughs> that's such a that's such a gift because it's just me and billy we're just talking about hey what are we going to do in this thing you know and then you can get as esoteric as you want you can say like well the rocky mountains are over there let's mimic some of that stuff or the rolling hills or um and then the other end of it it's like hey we've already got a kidney here we've got an amoeba there we've got an egg here let's build a bullet shape or let's do you know let's like let's make let's give montana the biggest and most diverse palette of of parks that we can and and because Grindline and Dreamland built those first 10, 12 parks, we have their styles everywhere. And then these last 10, 12 parks have been evergreen parks. And so it's, you know, it, you know, it, it feels like, you know, if I was a skateboard anywhere on the planet, Montana would be a pretty great destination. Like you could get on a motorcycle, get in a van, throw your sleeping bag in a tent, your fishing pole and have like the best two weeks of your life. Like... You know, see some national parks. Not, I, I, I can speak to that. Right. I've done it. it um, so through the act of building the skate parks, you're also, I think, aren't you? Like, I, I hate making kids go to skate park meetings because adults are always jerks in those meetings. And it, um, but I think it does sort of galvanize some subset of those kids as advocates, future advocates. Um, and at Thunder Park, I definitely noticed that those kids were like giving me a master class in stewardship 
Like they were pulling like dead frogs out of the bowl and they were like making sure that I wasn't some creepy weirdo by asking me like what I was doing there. Um, Do you see sparks of engagement and enlightenment from these kids after they witness the process? Have there been any like future tribal council members that have come from the skate park process or anything that you can like point to and go like, yep, we made great skateboarders. We made a great place for these kids to call home. And then we also have like sparked their interest in some of these things. Um, I mean, that's what you hope, you know, you hope in these places that, you know, and you've, um, it doesn't matter if it's a reservation or a small town, you, you, you try to, uh, sort of teach them that, Hey, this, this is your park. Like, and you can take care of it and sweep it up and keep the drains unclogged. And it can, it can, like, you'll have kids in 15 years and they'll be skating, they'll be skating this park and, or you can let it get, you know, destroyed and let people paint on it and let people throw big rocks and drive cars into it and all, you know, all the things that happen at skate parks. Um, And it'll be done in five or 10 years. It'll be, it'll just have to get filled in or whatever. Cause I said, there's a good chance nobody's going to come back and build a new one or fix it. Like, you know. You know, who knows? Um, and I would say about half of the communities, you, you get that one to five kids that really take ownership of the thing and sort of are the watchdogs and are the ones that will send emails and say like, hey, man, the drain's clogged in the bowl or in the deep section or uh, somebody drove a something and chipped the corner out of this or, you know. And um, again, that's that's you know, part of the fringe benefits is like, I, you know, I have relationship with a bunch of these kids and, and some of the young adults that are raising young families in these towns and they, you know, they want their town to be, you know, as awesome as a big city, you know, in terms of the stuff that they have to do. So, um, you know, the success stories are such successes in my mind that you just sort of hope that at some point, you know, maybe it didn't, Maybe you don't have that group of people at the beginning of some park, but you hope, you know, by coming through every summer and sort of, you know, a lot of times we'll show up with like, you know, 10 hefty bags and tell the kids like, okay, if you fill a hefty bag, you get a set of wheels or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's what we do at Thunder Park a lot of times. And just sort of show them like, it's like, hey man, people are going to be coming through to skate your park. And if it's, a mess that they might just leave they might just like go to the next park if you take care of it then you have this group of people from all over the planet that you you know you have this relationship with and to me you know when you got somebody from out of town that came to your small town whether it was like you know somebody's grandparents lived in big sandy or whatever and they'd bring their kid from the bay area or whatever it was like it was like gold mine. Like you get this outside information, like what's going on, you know? And so that, you know, I think that's what I sort of hope happens with these, these parks is you, you know, you get this stream of like kind of these weird, you know, these weird creative types that skateboarders are, you know, coming to these little towns and, and hopefully leaving some, uh, some good influence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I think that's happening. Um, 
So we've seen in Seattle with organizations like Ski Like a Girl that once the skate park opens, it's kind of like the real work starts, you know. Um, it sounds like you're still connecting with um, – there's some kids and some subset of the kids that are connected with you and they report like these problems and, um, you know, so you're supporting them in that way. Um, but uh, it seems like programming and support services can make a big difference between a skate park becoming a welcoming, positive place or becoming a place that can be pretty negative. Um, especially for kids who don't fit into the typical like gnarly bro skater mold. Um, so what do you tell these municipalities about ensuring that their parks are successful and welcoming in the future? Do you provide any sort of, um, guidance or ongoing kind of help with like, okay, here's how we make this thing work after we put it in the ground? Yeah. You know, there's a few places that have had little contests. I know Thunder Park, the first two or three years, um, they actually, uh, the tribe brought a bunch of, you know, money into it. And we would, you know, I would get a group of people together and we'd go up and, and, uh, you know, we would, uh, have these, you know, be part of these contests. And, um, I think that's one way. And we, we've talked to, you know, it ha we haven't really followed through with it, but I've, we've had conversations about, um, if you could figure out like some way to have these contests and to have the winners all get to travel somewhere or, um, you know, I mean, I, I always hate to have it just be like the reservations are having this inter reservation stuff. I, like, I, I try to be, you know, I don't want it to be just a, that we're doing stuff for reservations. I want it to be that we're doing stuff for small isolated communities. And I feel like, I think the small isolated white communities have as many inherent problems as the reservations do. But if there's a way to sort of, you know, just cross pollinate more, I think, I think that just starts to, you know, it just starts to, uh, I don't know, just to get people a little bit more empathetic towards what's going on with their neighboring towns and they're and these and again going back to what we talked about at the beginning like hey that kid's me <laughs> right he's it's a the basketball skin, example yeah his skin's a different color uh his hair's long like wh whatever um but he rips and um and i rip in this other way and we can teach each other and the times when i've seen like there's a there's a a guy at thunder park that's actually taken some of those kids to like he brought them to big sandy he brought some to lewistown uh, a couple years ago that's like magic. That's like those kids show up and they're like, they've been riding their park for four or five years and they got, they got skill and they just show up and they just drop in and start ripping. And that, that to me is like, if you, if the more we can get more of that stuff going on, like, again, if you can get those kids traveling just in their own state or just down the road an hour and hopefully when they're, you know, what I've told a couple of kids, I'm like, man, you gotta get a job so you can get a car so you can, you can drive over to Haver and Big Sandy, like, and yeah. go go spend the weekend over there and skate. You know, um, so it, you know, when it's really, it's like you're you're zooming out from building individual parks to like building a network of parks, and now you're starting to think about how that network can like be utilized by the kids that that are isolated. Yeah. And so now your new issue is kind of like, oh, 
how do we unisolate or de-isolate these kids through the skate park network yeah. and use the skate park network as like this underground railroad to get them in and out of these different communities and get them cross-pollinating. That's amazing. And it seems like that's a great segue into kind of my next question, which is talking about the future of MPS. Um, you know, like how do you, what do you see it to be 10 years from now? Um, assuming Montana still has a town without a skate park at that point, which seems unlikely, but you know, would you expand? I know you've done a couple out of state parks, but um, would that be something that you'd be looking into or skate parks on Mars or what, like, what do you, what are you thinking? I know there's a scholarship program now, which doesn't even have anything to do with skateboarding. Like what, what, what are your ideas for the future? Well, I I I think as long as there's, you know, I know North Dakota doesn't have very many skate parks. So that, that could very well be like the next, um, and I've gotten to know a few people that, um, you know, are, part of the skateboard culture in North Dakota. Um, but I, I think, you know, at least the next five years, I f- sort of feel like if we build two, three parks a summer for the next five years, w- w- like, I think we can, I think we can probably get another 12 to 15 towns. Um, I think there's six or seven right now that are sort of like that we're talking to. So, and, and at this point, it's sort of like looking at the state and go and going like, okay, like one of the parks we're going to build this year is in Wolf Point, And that's probably the most isolated area in the state that doesn't have a skate park um so that that's you know mile uh wolf point and then miles city which is kind of between glendive and baker and then if we can get something on the crow reservation like in harden that's uh sort of by billings and billings has a skate park but it's terrible it's such a it's the worst skate park in the state and it's biggest city in the state and it's um, so if we can get some other parks sort of around Billings, Libby, uh, Alberton this year, um, there's, uh, some people in Lincoln, Montana that I've been, uh, talking to, which is between Great Falls and Missoula. So just sort of filling in all the, you know, the spaces in between Shelby, there's, uh, a friend of mine who, uh, Larry Koskowiak, who became a a uh, pro basketball player is a coach in college now at University of Utah. He wants to do, wants to build a basketball court or something. And so we're talking about doing something together and making it this little, um, so, I, I, you know, again, it's like you end up reconnecting with all these people that, you know, came from s- similar uh, uh, backgrounds and and just, you know, and some of it's keeping some of these rural areas alive. I, I, I honestly feel like as populations get crazier and the environment starts to get wonkier, I think there's going to be people are going to start to go back to some of these areas. And I think just keep them alive enough to, you know, take care of them just enough. So like in 20 or 30 years, they're, you know, it's a place that people will want to live and raise their family. So I think it's amazing. Um Okay, so here's some just some easy stuff at the end. Um, who was your favorite skater when you were a kid, and who is your favorite skater now? Wow, my favorite skater as a kid. Well, I mean, my first favorite skater was Tony Alva, um, and then I think it it it, it sort of t- that sort of turned into Chris Dropel, um kind of for different reasons. But um, um, and my favorite skater now. God, yeah, I was just at the ProTech pool party. And so to, to see all those young kids. Um, like, yeah, who's, who's the young, hot skater uh, that you like? 
who's the uh, Corey? Uh, what's the kid's name? Oh man, I'll think. I'll think of his name in a second. But there's kids doing like ten foot. You know, I don't know. I don't know what kind of air it was. Right. Very awesome. <laughs> you know. Uh, and you know, in the other guy that I I saw in like around 1986, they there was a a vert contest at the Mercer Arena. And I I got in and got to stand on the decks for a couple hours and we were watching everybody skate and it was like Lester Kasai and Blender and all those guys. And then Christian Asoy showed up and his first, he showed up like super late. His first run <laughs> was like maybe the greatest thing I've ever seen in skateboarding. He literally was blasting 10 feet, twice as high as anybody else. And did it with like it what seemed like no effort. Like it was like you know probably like people when they first saw Larry Bertelman or any of those guys surf. You know like like what is that? What you know what's going on there? Or you know Christian Fletcher doing airs in the water or whatever. Um, but that, that's a hard question. That's like sort of like I said, what's your favorite song? Yeah, it's I, know, like, I know. <laughs> it's funny that you bring those examples up because. I, you know, I grew up in Hawaii. And so I did see Larry Bertelman in the lineup surfing as a kid yeah. and uh, did blow me away. And then I would go to my drainage ditch in my neighborhood and then there he was skateboarding. Right. Um, but what's funny about that is that, uh, so in Hawaii, we had all these ditches and there would be like kind of uh, every once in a while, like every, I don't know, two or three months, there would be a pack of pros that would just kind of roll around with like Mark Oblo or somebody. And he would just like, they would come and they would invade our ditch. Right. And it was kind of this weird vibe and it was a little confrontational where they expected us, cause they had photographers and stuff. They expected us to stop skating so that they could come in and take some photos and skate. And um, some of them were a lot cooler than others about that part of it, right, you know? Right. And they were like, they would be cool with us. And they would like, Hey, you guys mind if we just skate your spot, you know? And other guys would just be like, but um, Hosoi, out of all of those guys, we saw him like same guys regularly, kind of year after year, was the most mind blowing every single time. It was just like the style, the smoothness, the um, just connecting everything, and then just rolling into like this kind of crusty, gross like drainage ditch and turning it into like the parks that we only knew from like. Uh, or a ramp, like I didn't know a ramp from, uh, you know, whatever. It was like the, my, I had a quarter pipe in my driveway that was like maybe two pieces of plywood that didn't even have a transition connecting them. But like right. the, um, you know, the way that they skated these things made our our local little ditch. seem like it was legit. Yeah, yeah. And like, oh, okay. So it's possible to do that here. Yeah. And so it gave us some headroom in our imagination. Like, okay, that's cool. But Tosoy for sure out of everybody. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Um. Okay, and then like, what's your dream project that MPS has yet to make happen? Like, uh, is there some like thing way out in this like figment of your imagination where you're like, God, you know, I'd love to build a skate park that's like different in this way or is like in this location that is super exotic or? Well, you, you know, the I feel like I've done a, I feel like I've done a lot of those kind of dream thing. I mean, building. A park in Missoula, building a park in my hometown in Big Sandy, uh, uh, the you know Thunder Park, uh, working with Murph and Walt on the uh, Pine Ridge parks. Um, you know, there's a. I think next year they're trying to get the third park built in, in Pine Ridge, um, actually in the town of Wounded Knee, and um, it's a, it's sort of like a, 
an extension of what Hubbard did at South Park, which to me, like, it really does. I can't skate that part great, but when I skate it, it's it's it taps into some funny thing. <clears throat> and I had a lot of conversations with Hubbard about that part. And so, like a lot of his designs, when he really just got to go off, Dylan isn't, do you ever skated Dylan in Montana? Mm -mm. It's like a weird racetrack over a metal full pipe. He was really onto something with that park. Um, but they're gonna do like a, a version of the South Park uh, skate park at Wounded Knee and uh, four directions and all that stuff is such a big part of of the Lakota culture. And so that that's 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 a dream. That's a dream park. Like, you know, we want to make sure that that park gets really gets done right. And Shaggy's on board, like Shaggy's going to be there for that whole thing. And and then, the, the you know, the. I've sort of been talking off and on for seven or eight years with different people on the Crow Reservation. And so that's probably the next big, you know, like if we could get that going next summer and even talking to some other, you know, talking to Vans and a few other people to sort of maybe come in big, you know, and try to do something a little bit bigger. Um, I, you know, I, I still don't, you know, I tried at the beginning to sort of uh, find partners on some of the stuff. And I just felt like I never got back what I, what I was promised. And so it was always frustrating. And I just feel like they're just missing the boat. They're just missing the boat. Like, you know, I, I would, I would tell them what we're trying to do. And then I would say, look, even if you don't care about human beings, like just purely from like a marketing standpoint, this is a fucking home run. This is such a home run. Like, like, skateboard skateboarders like like they can relate they, they they relate they relate to the struggle and they relate to um you know the disappointment and all of those things and i just said you know i you know there's something there's some there's a similarity going on between uh the, the people that really love skateboarding why they love it and sort of what's uh, going on historically with native people. And I, I just said, like, like I said, I, I think about marketing because it's what I've done in the band and those things. And so just the colors and the all, everything involved, I'm like, it could just be such a, you know, it could just be such a great thing. And then you can go there and witness the goodwill that you did and like feel good about your business and feel, you know, good about, you know, that you're not just like, creating a bunch of shit to go in a landfill you're you know you're doing something but that so that's 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 probably my biggest um i don't know that's that's probably my biggest thing is to like just to get more people to understand like like why they should do more you know that's great so we should mention that we're in west seattle right now and you just mentioned hubbard and that you know we lost him mm -hmm. And it's a huge loss to our community, and um, he's just such an influential, great guy. Um, so rest in peace, Mark, uh, P-Stone, Phelps. We lost a lot of... Yeah, all, I mean, you know, all with a really big, you know, except for Phelps, but I mean, P-Stone was living here, so... Um, yeah, Hubbard is, you know, he's just the, like one of the characters, you know, it's like... 
you know, you just couldn't, you know, it was like, seemed like such a miracle that Grindline would be the biggest skateboard, you know, like, you know, the first few times I met Hubbard, I was like, oh my God, this guy's a, a wreck, you know? But when he was in the middle of building, used, there was so much passion. And when he talked about skateboarding, there's so much passion. The same with P-Stone and Phelps and that whole thing. It's like, you know, on the surface, like you, you might have, you might have seemed like, he wasn't a good guy or whatever, but like, I mean, all those guys cared so much about skateboarding and maybe they couldn't always articulate it in a way for the layman to understand, but they knew better than anybody, like how they felt, <laughs> Right. not just when they skated, but when they contributed or when they built something and then skated it and, and, uh, you know, Hubbard's, you know, he's one of the great human beings to come out of the Northwest ever. Like, I'll, I'll put him up against Bill Gates or whoever. Well, I hope you know that you're uh, a good guy on the surface, <laughs> and you're also one of the greatest uh, people to come out of the Northwest, and you're uh, definitely, obviously dedicated to skateboarding, and you've done a lot, and I think that... Um, everybody understands that. Everybody recognizes that. So thanks for what you're doing. Um, you're an amazing dude. We love you. Thanks, and, Matt. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Season zero's in the bag. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. I want to thank Jeff for stopping by and giving us a chance to talk to him about his incredible work with Montana Pool Service and also just for all the great work that he's doing that we're certainly benefiting from when we go on our Montana skate park safaris. I also want to thank you, the listener, for sticking with us while we figure out some of the more subtle nuances of podcasting throughout this season. And I want to thank Bill Wolford and Stefan Nelson for contributing their versions of the PMA theme song to this season. And finally, I want to thank my friends Ed and John from the High Gain Podcast, who gave me some advice on how to put this thing together. You can check them out at thehighgain.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next season. Toodaloo!